Welcome to our podcast. This is Film Juxtapose. I'm Ben. And I'm Javier. Welcome, welcome. Uh, today we are doing It's Only the End of the World and Eat, Pray, Love. For the record, Javier chose Eat, Pray, Love. I did. I did choose Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> Because uh, I was going to say, we are going to discuss uh, plot points, so spoilers will be, there will be spoilers. It's Only the End of the World focuses on a young man who returns to visit his family 12 years after being absent, with the intention of informing them that he is dying, or rather has a terminal illness. Um. And the film spans a sort of like a one-day period, or rather afternoon, during his visit, when tension rises amongst the family members. And Eat, Pray, Love is a film, it's a biographical romantic drama, starring Julia Roberts as a woman who is unhappy in her marriage, divorces her husband, and goes on to find herself throughout the world, specifically Italy, India, and Indonesia. And on the road, she meets Javier Bardem. Yes, that's what that film was about. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's, it's very interesting, you know, that it's a, it's a biographical, uh, based on a biographical book. I thought it was about how to fold laundry effectively. But... Ah, callback. If you've watched the film, you know what Ben's talking about. Yeah, oh, the, I think I should note, I think that's the director's cut. I'm not, I believe that's the additional scene that's been added. I do not believe that James Franco folds underwear in the theatrical cut. If you listen to our podcast and have seen both versions of the film and can verify, or what would be the alternative word? Um, disprove. Exactly. Disprove my theory. Please get in touch. I'd love to know if it is, in fact, the what I've been told to be the uh, underwear folding scene, which the director, Ryan Murphy, felt must be added for the director's cut. I mean, I did see it because it's on Netflix. Um, and I believe that was, you know, 140 minutes, which is the extended version as opposed to the 133 minutes of the theatrical release. So, you know, seven minutes that... Uh, seven minutes. Okay, so there must be more beyond the folding. Probably some establishing shots. Yeah, some crane shots. Just a couple of them. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, interestingly, I thought it was actually already... So, both films sort of kick off with voiceover. Yes, I, I did make a note. I, I made a note of that. Because I was like, oh, hey, I like this. I like voiceover. Um, the slightest difference being that the voiceover in It's Only the End of the World sort of establishes the drive behind the film, which is very very much feels authentic to the medium that the material originated from, which is theater. Mm -hmm. feels almost like a Shakespearean open where it, it says to the audience what to expect. But the, the voiceover of Eat, Pray, Love, I don't think it's necessary, to be honest. And I think it's an excuse for probably the most interesting thing about that film. That was a very harsh thing to say. But uh, in terms of film technique, it was the most interesting thing about the film. Because in those sequences, if you were to hit the mute button and not listen to Julia Roberts reading pages of script, you would actually realize that you're watching a silent film. Because we can understand what she's doing, how she's feeling, just using 
sequences of images, which is very uh, primitive and very, uh, like, it's the traditional form of early cinema, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I felt that um, it's, it's like, I don't want to say cheap, but, but for lack of a better word, it's, a, it's the cheap trick of adapting a, a book into cinema, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the voiceover narration, it's the, oh, the people are not going to know what the character is feeling merely by show, don't tell, so I'll just tell them. And um, yeah, I was a bit conflicted about, about it because it, it, it didn't seem entirely necessary. Um, it seemed more like a, a bit like you said, like a bit like a crutch that wasn't necessary. There is definitely a feeling, I agree with you, of like the voiceover in Eat, Pray, Love is a crutch and a sort of strange... Uh, yes, I agree. The voiceover narration it does feel like a crutch. And I don't want to say cheap. Well, I apologize for having used the word cheap. I said I couldn't find a better word. I think I'm going to use the word lazy, which is probably worse than cheap. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> okay, yep. It definitely felt like... I got the feeling at times that the film was rushed during production. Okay. Um, and they were sort of like on location, just filming anything that they needed. And they were sort of like, they had the feeling or... I had the feeling that they were going to be going back to, you know, the studio at the end and like, they'll just get Julia Roberts to read a couple of pages of the book and, and we'll cut it together. So actually a really ta a random tangent. Um, there's a fight scene in Eat, Pray, Love uh, that I'm specifically going to refer to, which is a handheld footage scene. Um, it's a fight between James Franco and Julia Roberts. Do you remember the scene? No, I do not. When did this happen? When they split up, or the build-up to the split up. No, but please do go on. I thought it was very forced. I can't even remember it, so maybe that's why. But it does kind of like, it's in an interesting part of Eat, Pray, Love, um, <clears throat> which it, it sort of builds on, which is in Eat, Pray, Love, there's definitely a feeling of people playing roles in relationships. Um, uh-huh. Which is similar to what we have in It's Only the End of the World. The only slightly difference, slight difference is that the roles in Eat, Pray, Love are Western ideas of um, social roles in terms of like what a woman is, what a man is, and mm -hmm. how they should interact with each other. And there's like... There's plenty of reference to the age gap between the Franco character and the Roberts character. True. Where it's only the end of the world, the fights are often to do with personal trauma, and the roles being played are not socially generated for the most part. They're actually ones that are very specific to that household, um, where clearly there was some sort of incident around these individuals and how they interacted with each, with each other and their expectations of each other are built on their personal conflict. And it's not as simple as like boyfriend, girlfriend in Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah, it's a very interesting and toxic family dynamic going on in uh, It's Only the End of the World. Um, I also found that going back to the adaptation of it all because of course they are both adaptations which you know another juxtaposition that we didn't quite expect um it's it's always i think it's always really hard to bring theater into film 
without it feeling like theater. Um, I, I feel like, you know, many films that like have very few characters and a, a single location are because of the way they decide to shoot them, I guess, they very clearly are based on a play. I'm thinking, for example, right now about God of Carnage. Um, whereas with this one, between the uh, the way it was shot, the camera angles chosen, I guess, and uh, just all the photography and all the flashbacks, beautiful flashbacks, by the way. Um, I think it didn't it didn't feel to me like it was a play. Um, in fact, only after I watched it and I did some research did I realize that it was based on a play. Yeah, I'll join you. I think in that instance, um, Savio Dolan with his adaptation, uh, one of the things he added that would have not been available to viewers in a theater experience of the original text is the intimacy of the characters. You wouldn't have seen their faces at that size where you could see micro reactions. And that is very much this. There are several scenes in the film that are built around micro reactions or people exchanging looks, which you might have had that at a certain distance, like in a small theater room, but uh, never to the extent of like having a giant close up of, you know, Marion Coutelard staring at someone. Um, there was definitely a feeling that the film camera yeah. was in areas that, it, you know, like a theater audience could not go, uh, which was very cinematic. And and it's a nice yeah moment to discuss as well. There are many scenes in It's Only the End of the World where the shift in location or time is not very clear because we move from close-up to close-up. Um, but the sh the way the space is lit or the, the very subtle change in uh, sound or texture is apparent. Yeah. Which is a very, like, it feels like a very different style of handling time and space in comparison with Eat, Pray, Love, which is like, whenever Julia Roberts transitions to a different place, we, we get a series of montages, stock footage, music, and it's like, we get the feeling of movement with the camera, we get, you know, tracking yeah. shots, and there's lots of... Uh, activity to indicate a change in location and i did wonder as well if if part of this is the difference between the personal space mm -hmm. and um a white woman in an exotic location <laughs> there is a slight feeling that um in it's only the end of the world we're yeah. definitely tied with the lead character and their personal experience of that interior of that house the whole the whole thing you raised about time apparently I mean there's props to Xavier Dolan because also he had the character periodically checking the clock well both the watch in his wrist on his wrist and the cuckoo clock on the uh, on the wall um, and I think that may have to do with the fact that from what I've read the play is way more verbose it is way more monologue-y. It's just monologue after monologue. 
And it's weird because it happens in the span of one day and also one year. Um, it so, you know, very theatrical-like, I guess. But I guess that's the way that Xavier Dolan decided to ground it in reality in a certain point in time. Um, and I, th I thought it was, it's, you know, a very clever way to, to adapt such a, an apparently difficult text. That, for example, Gaspard Uyel, R.I.P., um, when he read the play the first time, he was like, how, how are you going to put this into film, you know? How's this going to make any sense? So I do have one little last bit to chew with Eat, Pray, Love, which is an interesting one. The music chosen in two instances, which are very deliberate sequences and very beautiful, might I add, make almost no sense. So there's a beautiful sequence where we get to watch pasta being made and served to Julia Roberts. It is beautiful. It's what we would describe as food porn. Yes. And yet there's German music that plays over it, which is opera. The magic flute. Which is very weird because the film is set in Italy, like that particular sequence is set in Italy. It's not like there's no, no it, it, Italian operas to choose from. Yeah, it's a bit weird. It's like, did you not realize that you had chosen an opera that's not an Italian? I guess it was just because of the, uh, I guess it is the most well-known, isn't it? It would have made more sense for to have that sequence in a German restaurant with German food. Yes. Um, or should I say Austrian food? But uh, likewise, when um, uh, Julia Roberts travels to, I believe it to be India. Yes. Yes. But if I'm wrong, I'm still correct, even if it's Indonesia. There's a sequence there where we, we open the sequence with little tuk-tuk, tuk-tuk bites, whatever they're called. <laughs> and we have music by MIA, who has appropriated a sample, and it's not a criticism, but they seem to be confused as to where this music comes from, because it's not native to India. It is most definitely music from the West, which again is like a weird misstep, and I part of me kind of felt in both instances that someone in the, the studio got confused, and they just seemed to be throwing music into it that made it a playlist, but there's like a discord between what we're watching and the authenticity of the music being chosen. But there's a reason why I'm mentioning this, and it's a very valid one, and it's actually weirdly appropriate. Is there a chance that the character that Julia Roberts is playing... She is Liz. Okay, yes, Liz. Is there a chance that this is Liz's internal idea of the music that she's, like, around? Like, so to her, like, pasta goes with opera, but she won't know the difference between Italian opera and a German opera, what she hears in her head is like opera going with pasta. So I wondered if like there's some sort of weird backhanded, I can't work out if this was deliberate or if it's an accident or a happy accident and I'm just reading into it. But have we got a really, really skilled choice of music going on that we're actually witnessing these foreign countries through, through the eyes of a Westerner who's projecting their ideas onto foreign countries and sort of like thinking of music um that would be what they think is appropriate or are we actually just witnessing really bad song choices i'm afraid and uh it's not actually the internal psychological element of the character that we're hearing 
actually it's the American filmmaker that we're hearing. I mean, you make a valid point. I don't know if I would um, give the film that much credit. No, I don't know. I mean, just based on other things, you know, you know that I always like films and that um, it's really hard for me to get pulled out of a film. But at times, one of my notes was that I was being very aware of the script because some lines were just dot, 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 not great. Um, so, it, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful sentiment, what you're, what you're proposing. Um, I don't know if, if it is true. I, I think option B might be more what happened um, instead, of, instead of option A. Well, I mean... We do need to give some credit to Ryan Murphy. He did make, like, like, you know, he made Glee, which has got an incredible number of song choices. Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting that um, Dolan made It's Only the End of the World in Canada, and he is, first and foremost, a Canadian filmmaker. But it's, it, I guess, suppose mm-hmm. it's, an, it's an unusual film that it is set in France, and it's a French play, and it's authentically French with its cast. Um, but it's just, it's an interesting choice, because it sort of refers to the, I suppose, the French culture that um, is very much part of his heritage through the Quebec area. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's... Yeah, I follow you. Yeah, it's not a form of appropriation, but it's interesting in a certain context that it's also not a French film, and that the French haven't adapted any plays by this playwright. Mm. It's like taking an outsider to personally make this adaptation. I'm not quite sure where I'm going with that point, but... No, I was going to say that now when you talk, I do hear the rain behind you. <laughs> yes, uh, for those that are um, <clears throat> listening, I apologize, it started to rain outside. Um, so I noticed at the beginning of the film that the family's very much excited for, uh, is it Louise? Louis. 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 Louis' arrival. Um, but uh, it's an excitement that carries a sort of impending doom to it. Um, definitely get the feeling that they're expecting it not to go well. And so it does. So do, do they, are they the, uh, the builders of their destiny in that, then, by expecting it not to go well? Or is it just that the, their family dynamic is so entrenched in them that it doesn't matter if a, if, a, if a foreign object, because of course he's been away from the house for 12 years, uh, like even, not even that, not even that moment of, uh, of, of happiness, of return, is going to change anything in these people? Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think there is, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what Louis says in the voiceover at the beginning. But there is definitely a hint there as well that he knew it wasn't going to go well. And also the later on when he tells um, his brother the, the, the sort of like what he was doing and why he was running late and the choice not to come to the house, but rather to wait in the airport um, and, and have a, a coffee. Um, there is definitely a hint that even he knew it wasn't going to go well. And it's, it's something that's quite interesting. It's that idea with um, it's only the end of the world that I really like um, because it's quite an unusual narrative to include in a film, which is that a character that comes from the past returns and expects to have a meaningful interaction. But in reality, the characters interacting with them 
have already said goodbye to this person. So there's this weird sense in It's Only the End of the World that his presence is almost no longer wanted. And multiple characters ask him, why have you come here? And even when he replies going, you know, out of nostalgia, um, there's, there's an interesting element to the presence that's unwelcomed. There's even like a hint that he dig- his, his presence digs up memories of things that were destroyed, um, such as like Suzanne didn't get to go on those Sunday mornings that everyone reflects on. But they don't actually reflect on these things, usually. It's only when Louis is around that they're sort of reminiscing on something that Suzanne, his sister, didn't get to experience, um, which is the family things. I just wanted to, to add to that because I've, I've got Wikipedia, Wikipedia open here. Uh, and apparently in selecting his soundtrack, Dolan sought, quote, this sort of happy, sad, nostalgia-filled texture end quote hence he chose i miss you by blink 182 which when i heard it i was like hey it's there uh and natural blues by moby lighting has a great feeling or purpose as well and it's only the end of the world and i guess in both instances it's a compliment to both films because it's an underused technique and it's only end of the world tends to use light almost like how I'd describe a submarine. It's like a, it's like a used as almost like a chamber transition tool. The lighting shifts from one space to the other. It's often very limited. It, it comes through windows. It comes through different sources. But most importantly, when the door is opened and the rain suddenly stops, we get this great warm glow, which is quite... Um, stylized it's quite uh it's almost like a douglas sirk film at that moment the sort of like 1940s melodramas 1950s rather um where like color gave a particular meaning to a scene and there is definitely that beautiful warm glow at the end of the film um which is very unusual and and both films really capitalize on the abilities of lighting I also think that uh, the lighting in It's Only the End of the World also contributes to that uh, assistance in delineating time, as silly as it sounds. But, you know, we've got that uh, sunset, I guess, that warm glow of a sunset. I hadn't thought of it as a sunset, actually. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, th- I, th- I thought that, that that light was very much, you know, and it, it, it seemed strange because... If I'm not mistaken, it's around 4pm, and it is also summer, potentially? Yeah, there's lots of sweating going on. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a heat wave, that's the thing. Either it's expressing externally what's going on internally, or maybe we're witnessing the geography of having filmed in Canada... But I, I do genuinely feel that it's very deliberate because that particular wide where um, where Louis is standing in the frame of the door and the light is behind him, that, that the type mm-hmm. of machinery required to pull off that shot would have been very specific. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, again, in, in both films, there's an interesting use of technology in terms of films. Ryan Murphy is definitely one of the 
the few filmmakers that really uh, relies on on crane shots to get camera movements, and there's a lot of Steadicam. Telling me about it. <laughs> a neat pray love, where it's only the end of the world. There's almost the complete other spectrum of it. There's an awareness for how delicate photography can be by restricting light and keeping cameras in tight spots and sort of like honing in on the actors' faces. Um, isn't it? There's a, there's a lot of low level lighting, low light photography in uh, It's Only the End of the World, which I think we have to attribute to digital cameras. I don't think celluloid would have, would have succeeded to capture some of those faces, um, especially that opening scene with um, Louis and his face with that light, very light blue light. Um, it's almost indistinguishable uh, in terms of the tones. Uh, but it's definitely a digital camera that could pull that off. And if it's celluloid, I'd be very impressed. Also, there were many points at the beginning, especially of Eat, Pray, Love, when I I was starting to get annoyed at the fact that the camera wouldn't stop moving. I just wanted a steady shot, but I couldn't get one. I just got dollies and cranes and just non-stop. Thank you for joining us today. Please don't forget to subscribe. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.